amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everyone. Tom Slater from Spikes here. Before we get into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. I know it's a hard time out there for many of you, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash in order to fund our work and make sure that we can reach more and more people. I also wanted to let you know about a fund drive that we're doing for the next couple of weeks to fortify us for the months ahead. And for a limited time only, those who donate £50 or more can get their hands on a free signed copy of How Woke One, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams. And not just that, you can also get a year subscription to Spike Supporters. This is our donor community where you can get access to live events and to all kinds of other exclusive perks. So in order to make your donation to claim your copy of How Woke One and your Spike Supporters membership, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate and follow the instructions there. Once again, that's £50 or more donation. And to do that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the populist revolt in Italy, the UK's economic meltdown and the Labour Party conference. So at the weekend, Georgia Maloney and her right-wing brothers of Italy uh, swept the board in the Italian elections. They came out on top. Not entirely unexpected, um, given how well they were doing in the polls. But Tom, I mean, in recent years, we've been hearing that the populist revolt is is over. Mm -hmm. It's been killed by COVID, killed by Ukraine. I mean, now this is a clear repudiation of that. Populism is back, isn't it? Well, they've been saying populism has been killed by all sorts of things since more or less it emerged. I mean, I remember when <laughs> Emmanuel Macron was supposed to vanquish populism in um, 2017. So mm. there's been a lot of these moments over the years, as you say, COVID and the war in Ukraine being the latest vanquishes, allegedly. Um, but of course, it's come roaring back. Of course, it has, um, not least because of the fact that in Italy, as in so many places in Europe, you still have a population which is fed up with increasingly technocratic, undemocratic rule. Mm almost more pronounced in Italy than anywhere else in Western Europe, certainly, because of the fact that it has its democracy has been so hollowed out by um, EU diktat and by the essentially the sort of means in which its own kind of national elite kind of interfere to suppress the kind of more restive views of the population. I mean, Maloney will become the first kind of properly democratically elected prime minister for 14 years, yeah. given the fact that there's usually this kind, essentially this sort of bureaucratic stitch up which takes place to ensure that whoever's leading the government, however it's comprised, at least has the support of the establishment and particularly the Brussels establishment. So it just shows that that really hasn't gone away. Um, and in the form of someone like Georgia Maloney, um, despite the fact it's been kind of painted as this kind of far-right fascist for reason that we could get into, I think it just shows that that kind of campaign of demonization really isn't working because mm. those concerns that people have, that that desire to kind of hit back at the establishment and to have their voices heard hasn't gone away. It's just found a new outlet in the form of this party, given the kind of the previous sort of populist challenges ended up kind of melting away over yeah. the course of recent years for reasons that we'll probably get into. 
Well, exactly. I mean, the, the, in some ways, the rise of Maloney is quite staggering. You know, her party at the last election was on around 4% or something like that. But she was one of the few populist parties in Italy not to back the technocratic government of Mario Draghi when the Five Star Movement and the League, you know, rode in behind that, um, you know, almost capitulating to the most technocratic, most pro-EU government imaginable. Mm. Yeah, populist revolts have been disappointing in Italy. Um, in, in you know recent history, in terms of the way in which, obviously, Italy has a very different relationship with the European Union than we do, um, and it, it's the kind of the idea of an Ital exit or whatever it, it would be um, is trickier than than it would have been for us. Um, but there has been, you know, there's been failures to be sort of staunch in criticism of the European Union, and the confusing thing, or the sort of I suppose you could say interesting thing about Maloney is that she doesn't fit neatly into any of those kind of boxes. And actually, you mentioned in your column this week, Tom, um, about the fact that, you know, people are sort of wrong characterising her as either this incredible fascist threat or this sort of saviour of of uh, populists going to stir up in the European Union and mm. piss off von der Leyen. She's been quite capitulatory already um, in relation to um, how she's going to work with the European Union that, you know, she's confused people, um, even on social media, there's been this quite interesting play out of sort of lots of um, anti-woke social conservatives saying, she's fantastic, she's just what she needs, someone tweeted saying she's going to be the garlic that's needed for, you know, the kind of vampiric woke culture. Seems to be based around this one viral clip, mm. essentially, yeah, of, of her saying, I'm not a number, I'm not going to be a slave to financial speculators. Yeah, and identity is important, all that kind mm. of thing. But then they sort of, see that she supports Ukraine in, yeah. in the um, war against Russia and that she's got some, you know, that she's not a kind of fan of Putin. And then they're really upset because that's a bit <laughs> into the narrative. So I think the main point to make about her is, and the party is that it is, I think this is what you say in your column, Tom, it's neither the kind of silver bullet nor this like, disastrous moment. Yeah. It's, it's something interesting that's happened that should make you hopeful because even though you know, don't agree with lots of her policies in relation to women or um, abortion or gay rights or immigration or anything like that. It means that there's still space for some kind of dissent against technocracy uh, mm. in Europe, which is, you know, you're hanging on to it by a thread because it's really necessary. Tom? No, I think it's interesting how what we've basically seen is that the sort of revolt against the Brussels technocracy has shifted onto more firmly cultural grounds. I mean, yeah. that was always there insofar as the way in which the EU oligarchy doesn't have much truck with questions of national identity and there, mm. there being a kind of general argument amongst right-wing populists in particular that the EU is basically destroying the kind of regional diversity within Europe and it's um, them arguing against it on that level. But I think when you go from 2018 to now, you see that becoming much more explicit in 2018, we had the kind of populist government elected the Five Star and Lega uh, coalition. They sort of at least threatened to kind of rattle the cage of the Eurozone more specifically, um, tamped down their rhetoric a bit, but, you know, tried and failed to um, put forward this finance minister who was slightly more Eurosceptical, then tried and failed to bring in a budget that kind of very mildly went against EU um, edicts in relation to deficits and things like that. Um, and then, as you say, kind of threw their lot in with the establishment parties, essentially. Yeah. Maloney is interesting as far as um, she has has backed away almost almost more explicitly from kind of previous anti-euro stances. The platform that her and the other right coalition partners have signed up to commits them to EU integration, but with some kind of uh, reforms that they want and all the rest of it. 
Uh, and yet the and so the response is really on those questions of culture. She has said that she postures against the LGBT lobby, um, again against gay marriage, is against abortion, not against doesn't want to change the law, but is very kind of against that on sort of moral and religious grounds, I suppose. And what's interesting is that even that has provoked as almost as furious a response, at least rhetorically, yeah. um, from the Brussels Centre. So before the election, we saw Ursula von der Leyen in America being asked about the upcoming election and saying, we shall see, etc. But making this essentially veiled threat mm. about the fact that we have tools available to us if things go the wrong way and referencing <laughs> the ongoing battle between Brussels and Hungary and Poland and all the rest of that, um, which is in part on these kind of more cultural and moral grounds. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that whilst some people would want to kind of almost be too dismissive of as of Maloney as um as any kind of threat to Brussels, what's interesting is that they, they almost see this kind of cultural um point as as much of a threat in a sense. You know, yeah. they'll defend it as sort of keenly. And I think that's one thing that we've definitely seen demonstrated in a lot of the discussion about it so definitely far. That, that's definitely a change in how the how the eu operates and certainly you know the, the space for economic dissent is now so clamped down since the kind of greek experience since the experience of the you know italian debt crisis and things like that that you know populism has moved into this cultural sphere and the eu can't tolerate that kind of dissent either yeah, and it, but it's worth saying that it's not like the European Union has particularly progressive views on any of those issues. I mean, particularly, we and we always come back to this on this podcast, particularly in relation to immigration, they like to make out that, I mm. mean, okay, she's got some fairly hairy ideas about um, how to deal with immigration that we wouldn't agree with. But let's not pretend like the European Union is this sort of haven of open borders and uh, saving people from the sea because we know that it's uh, actually... It presents itself as such, though. Yeah, like. it, it, it does. But in in practice, it actually yeah. does pretty much exactly the opposite in relation to sort of fortress Europe policies. So there is this, you know, the European Union shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. But the, the reason why it's so important to point out that... Um, she is not the kind of this uh, fascist threat, as you put it, Tom, the kind of new march on Rome mm. sort of, mm. that, she, that it, it, this is not happening, a kind of rerun of history is not happening in Italy. It's because actually, if you look at the results, you know, a low, lower turnout mm. in terms of election results, it's more to do with a collapse and actually a fatigue within um, Italian politics because of the things we've already talked about, you know, previous populist parties being sort of a bit lackluster and there really not being that much on offer. Yeah. They should be, you know, I think the fact that her party has stirred the pot is something to be, uh, you know, celebrated or something to keep an eye on. But it's also the case that there has to be something more substantial going on in Italian politics for Italians. Um, and it remains to be seen. She's not got, she's not some kind of fascist threat, but neither does it, seem yet like you know the basically the proof is in the pudding and we have to wait and see what kind of not just what policies but what kind of tone her party and, the, and you know the people she works with will strike in relation to the european union in relation to ukraine and sovereignty and things like that but also trying to change some of the the economic situation for italians which let's remember mm. has been bleak for years and, now. and before we move on we should say as well it comes off the back of the sweden democrats mm. doing well in the swedish elections so it's not like a it, it, it's it's not a you know it's not a lone example no completely and i i think what we're seeing as well is the fact that you know voters are just consistently refusing to do what they're told mm. um and as we saw in sweden but particularly in italy given the fact that um brothers of italy do ha do trace their roots back to obviously fascist politics now i think that too much can be made in that insofar as the fact that it's now essentially the successor of the successor of a yeah. fascist party 
a post-fascist party, I should say. And that's not unique in European politics where a party like that suddenly enters the mainstream later on down the line. Um, broadly speaking, you could call them right-wing, you could call them populist. Is um, Loney itself is kind of ostentatiously conservative, mm. you know, cites Roger Scruton and J.R.R. Tolkien all the time in terms of uh, kind of intellectual low stars. But nevertheless, what's interesting is that those parties that people are told you should not touch them because they're toxic, they continue to vote for them. And I think that's a testament to the fact that whereas, you know, there's... There's parts. There's different parties which will agree, which will disagree with on different issues, and which, you know, I think the most you could say about to the whole kind of spread of populist revolts that we've seen in recent years is that they've been found wanting in one way or another. Yeah, and we might disagree with them and find them illiberal on other matters. Is the fact that there's still that desire amongst the voters for change mm. and to hit out against the establishment for their voices to be heard and to get out of the kind of both democratic and kind of economic sort of turmoil that they found themselves rolled in, particularly in Italy, for a very, very long time. Yeah. And the idea that that can just be wished away is obviously nonsense. It's not going anywhere. Those voters aren't going anywhere. And I think that's the thing that's most interesting and inspiring is that desire to hit out and not to do what you're told. And that's something that's there to be cultivated, not scorned, as tends to be the approach <laughs> time and again in recent years. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So the UK economy has had a little bit of a wobble, I think it's fair to say, since um, since Kwasi Kwarteng um, presented the mini budget on Friday, essentially setting out his plan for growth, including tax cuts, um, a major kind of bailout of or, or kind of energy price cap, essentially, the markets have gone haywire. Um, the pound fell to one of its lowest points against the dollar. Um, essentially, the currency is incredibly volatile. The price that the government pays for borrowing has gone all over the place. There's been a bit of a mini crisis uh, in the pension system. Tom, what have you made of this kind of chaotic few days? It's been incredible, and it's hard to um, make head nor tail of it in so many respects. I mean, particularly because of that kind of question about what is it specifically that has sparked this particular meltdown? Yeah. Um, because every people far more qualified than I seem to be arguing very furiously about what part of the budget or what part of its uh, that it was lacking that seems to have spooked the markets so much, and it sort of seems to align generally with um, align rather with what it is that you dislike about that particular budget, whether it's the cut to the forty five p top rate of tax or whether it's the energy price cap or what have you. One thing I've one thing I would put into the mix though is just it you can't help but feel that this kind of constant climate of panic mm. cannot help matters. You know, it does seem that we go from one enormous crisis to another. And the extent to which you can kind of talk yourself into a particular crisis is quite important. 
is quite significant. Um, and also, you know, the, you know, the markets and the investors are not necessarily rational in all situations. They yeah. do kind of respond to these kinds of moments of huge uncertainty, especially given the broader economic picture. And then I think that is also when we kind of ask the question of why Britain um, having this kind of response, despite the fact that many of the kind of economic problems are shared across the developed economies. I think there's also a kind of broader narrative which has taken hold, which is that uh, Brexit Britain is particularly kind of wayward, run by yeah. lunatics, um, and is you know therefore almost more likely to be the first domino to fall <laughs> than any other. And I think that is something that you definitely see. In, in, that can't help but have shaped things either, particularly yeah. with the IMF intervention, which obviously has its own knock-on effects to mm. the market and all the rest of it. Things are very, very serious. I think we'd be ludicrous to dismiss this as any kind of blip, even before this kind of multi-crisis crisis came along. The British economy, as well as various other Western developed economies, were incredibly exposed, incredibly yeah. weak, um, fragile. Um, but at the same time, you do feel like there's something about the current mood and the kind of incessant sort of panic mongering which mm. is going on which surely can't help matters if nothing else yeah definitely and you brought up the um the imf um th this is you know extraordinary intervention from the international monetary fund essentially telling the government to change course um in its policies now it did name um some specific mm -hmm. policies particularly the tax cuts um and the 45p rate which they say is going to um raise inequality i mean First of all, I did not believe that for one second that the IMF cares about inequality. Mm. I, I find that very hard to to swallow, given their track record around the world, having blown up the Greek economy, having you know, um, having blown up Asia, having done all so all kinds of damage to the developing world. It just seems absurd that they that that's at the top of their list of concerns. But I mean, Ella, what did you make of this intervention? I mean, it's just an outrage, really. Well, it's an outrage, but it's what the IMF does. Mm. And it's, you know, this is, but it, the thing is that it usually does it, as you say, in, with developing nations, not with a country like ours. And I think more outrageous than the IMF sounding out, sounding off as it does was the kind of the way in which its intervention was welcomed yeah. in this country, in which sort of you had then, as Tom says, you know, a completely panic-ridden uh, media set who were like, all hell is bright. That's it. The IMF has said, and so yeah. it's you know this Holy this is rip. it. Yeah, <laughs> apocalypse. Yeah. You know you have to listen to the IMF. There are you know there's representatives on you know all the major um, big political programs, news mm. and things like that. Uh, you had um, Mark Carney on Radio Four this morning, um, former Bank of England governor. Yeah, who's you know all these. What I'm sort of saying is all these kind of huge figures in the world of finance coming on to wag the finger and saying, oh, you naughty Brits, what have you done? You know, this wouldn't have happened if it was under my leadership, you know. And and there's that kind of sense of sort of an indulgence in the crisis almost, mm. in a sort of like... Some, you almost sense that some people kind of want it to happen because it yeah. would vindicate them. Look what <laughs> yeah. you've done. Yeah. Look what you've done and we said you were going to do it and yeah. you've done it. But I don't think we should, um, I don't think we should bypass... The, the, the difficult thing about the mini budget is that on the one hand, it's nonsense to suggest that this is a crisis made simply by Quasi Kwarteng and yeah. Liz Truss. That is just historically and economically illiterate because we know, um, and Phil Mullen has written about this on Spikes many, many times that the problems with the British economy go way back. But it has to be said that what has happened is in this mini budget, you have an announcement of essentially technocratic tweaks, you know, cut a bit of tax here, to pull a lever there, mm. you know, few pennies here, few pennies there, and you know, and let's let's brandish the word growth, yeah. but nothing substantial. 
And then the two of them go incognito for about four or five days or however long it was, answer no questions. And you have government ministers now being wheeled out on broadcast media, which at moments like this is important because this is what investors in, I don't know, other countries are listening to, yeah. saying, crisis, what crisis? There's no crisis. What's going on? You know, I think you just need to calm down. And it's very obvious that there is something to deal with. So I think, you know, the, the, the part of the problem is that it's not quite a storm in a teacup, but there is just an insubstantial, whatever word it is, an insubstantialness, if that's a word, to the to everything that's going on. Mm. Because actually, for, the, for those of us sat at home, you're thinking all that's happened is a kind of few poxy announcements, actually, really what it amounts to. And yet, and suddenly we're looking at economic Armageddon, or are we? And I think it, it, there's a point about democracy here, which is that there is, you know, obviously interventions from the IMF and Bank of England telling offs and, you know, actually even at a government that doesn't really have a mandate for this kind of um, tinkering with the economy, if I can put it that way. Um, the rest of us at home are just sat spectators <laughs> yeah. while, while, you know, news presenters are saying, well, you could lose your home. And you mm. just think this is there's something very vitally wrong here. I mean, there's something, yeah, the insubstantialness of trust is interesting. She seems almost, almost uniquely unsuited to yeah. the kind of crisis Has no idea when she's time. asked about mortgages to, today on regional radio. Blank. Has no answer <laughs> to it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that and there's the, there's the inadequacy, as you, as you suggested, of the, of the plan for growth. You know, the gap between the sort of boosterish rhetoric mm -hmm. and the actual policies that were contained in it. You know, tax cuts, you know, Fine, but they they've never been shown to mm -hmm. boost growth yeah. over the long run. It's that idea that you just get out of the way and everything will take care of itself <laughs> yeah. seems to be the sort of mantra. And it's obviously woefully inadequate for the for the times. But also given the fact that given things are so volatile, you know, it you know, in one sense the kind of going to ground and, you know, people could present it as well, they're sticking to their guns and, mm. you know, part of you thinks, you know, why should they do what the IMF tells them to do and all the yeah. rest of it? But you know, what the markets tell them to do, what the bankers tell them to do. Which is an important point because I'm struck by the number of left-wingers who seem to buy their kind of embrace of what the of the market signals as well as what the IMF has said as almost ceding to them the authority to dictate what is and isn't acceptable policy. Mm. <laughs> um, it's a strange road to go down. But, you know, people are kind of talking about, you know, they're sticking to their guns. But it's a funny kind of conviction if it's just behind closed doors. Yeah. You know, you're not coming out. You're not making the argument. You're not trying to. There was even reports that there was a kind of uh, disagreement between Kwarteng and Truss over whether or not they should make any kind of statement to try and settle the markets. Mm. So there's, the, the, you know, just there's there's a also just a kind of incompetence to the way in which this has been particularly sort of rolled out. And I think the democratic point is the key to all of this, as Ella was suggesting, not least because there's no pain-free way out of this of this situation that we found ourselves in. Um, things are going to get bad. <laughs> it's what flavour of bad and how quickly we can come out of it, which is going to be important. And that's got to be a discussion that involves everyone. Yeah. First of all, because there are, you know, it's in terms of not just getting out of the current crisis, but actually getting towards the kind of economy that we need. You know, getting out of the long-running problems that we've had you know flatlining living standards flatlining productivity this is something which has haunted the uk economy and many of us for a long time um that's something which is it's going to be it's going to take quite a radical break there's trade-offs involved there's all mm. these sorts of things which need to be discussed and yet um there's no sign of that discussion you've got an unelected government and i think if anything the the, the aside from all of the other factors feeding into the current sort of circus around this budget um, it is a good endorsement of why having proper democratic mandates is quite important. Yeah, it would become you know you would just through that kind of proper 
public discussion, yeah. you would recognise that not only was the public not going to be on board for this kind of programme, <laughs> which should have been obvious to anyone, Liz Truss almost makes a virtue out of that, yeah. um, but also because of the fact that even if you want to go down a particular route, you have the room to make your argument, yeah. you know, and I think that's something which has been completely lacking. And one thing that can't happen is always seems to happen is that the public just get entirely sidelined from this process because this affects their everyday lives in a way that is going to be more and more important and potentially painful in the months and years ahead. So one of the more obvious beneficiaries, if possibly the only beneficiaries of this kind of market meltdown is the Labour Party, who are now currently riding high 17 points ahead in the polls. They've just come out of their Liverpool conference. There's a lot of kind of media chatter that this is, you know, Starmer's moment. Finally, some flesh on the bones of Starmerism is, is starting to appear. Tom, do you buy that? I mean, this is still the same Keir Starmer, isn't it? It is. I mean, this is the uh, vindication, you might say, of his whole strategy, which was not to, um, is, was to effectively try and win the next election by default. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, given in the form of uh, Liz Truss and this particular blow-up, um, has been given a huge boost in that respect. Um, and I think what's what I find kind of interesting is how what he's essentially trying to do now, and you saw that very clearly at conference, is to try and triangulate mm. between sort of new Labour and blue Labour, if you could put it that way. Look, yeah. It's, you know, literally mouthing Blairite slogans as far as the Labour Party being the political wing of the British people. The common know, sense centre ground. The common sense centre ground, um, you know, again, kind of recycling all of these different sort of um, Blairite slogans. And then, on the other hand, also making a point of singing the national anthem, standing mm. in front of a union flag, uh, talking about community and belonging and all of these kinds family. of the family, all of these kinds of um, again, sort of blue labory notes. Um, but what you still at the centre of it is a kind of absence. I mean, and mm. also what's interesting is what always seems to fill, fill the gap these days is rampant eco politics, which yeah. is something which almost is sort of gone by without too much discussion because there's such consensus on this but you know this creation of this new nationally owned green energy company um is again is his, his response as is always the way to uh, an energy crisis which in large part has been created by the green fantasies we've been encouraged to pursue for so long his answer is more of it mm. um mm. and i think at least in one aspect that shows that despite the fact he's kind of appealing to those different sections of the sort of labor family if you like by hitting those particular notes in a way that it feels would be that will also chime with the public i suppose the sort of core of it is still all of the classic very contemporary and failed orthodoxies yeah you see what i mean there's nothing new there yeah. and there's also nothing that i think would feel genuinely substantial beyond those kind of points you know? i just when when i was looking at the speech i felt like ed Miliband could have delivered it and then the, the part, you know, the conference slogan was a, a greener, fairer future. That could have been any Labour leader going right back to Brown. Yeah, it, they're completely lacking in dynamism. And I mean, I, I, we're actually at the point at which, you know, a Tom's right, he doesn't need to be dynamic because the other side are, you know, pissing away any kind of, <laughs> um, you know, where, you know, the 2019 mandate and the kind of excitement around that, where has that gone? And just the chaos that it's engulfing, engulfing them. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, if, the, if there was a general election tomorrow and Keir Starmer didn't win, he should, you know, that would be incredible. That would be, you know, he should be ashamed for the rest of his life. But, the, but you know, if you look at it, particularly in relation to the economy, you've got a very serious crisis and a government that is, you know, basically, as we've just been talking about, either asleep at the wheel or pulling mad policies out of a hat. 
And, you know, the, the key problem with the Conservatives' plan is that they think you just lift the um, lift all the rules and this really dynamic, exciting capitalist class will step in and want mm. to build factories in Leicester and, and do stuff in, you know, places there where no one's been for years. They're out there. They're just waiting. Yeah. And just waiting to be unleashed. That's, uh, that's just <laughs> absolute nonsense. Um, you've got a completely lethargic capitalist class that's, my, as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, mired in kind of the safetyism of woke crap and you know doesn't want to rock the rock the boat and is bought up and paid up to this kind of eco narrative so you know there's no dynamism going on there and then Keir Starmer steps in and says we will now be the party of sound money mm. you think oh kill me you know there that but it's really a serious point which is that the whole narrative at the moment is still the opposition to the Tories is to be fiscally responsible and to count your pennies and to you know have a good common sense plan and that everybody, you don't have to have a PhD in kind of political economy or whatever, or know, even know anything about the economy to understand that what's needed now is big ideas, yeah. big, you know, big things happening in the country, big blocks of concrete being put in the ground, you know, think, do something, make some change. Um, and that was completely absent at a conference. And, you know, you have to chuckle to yourself and, and, you know, enjoy a little bit, even though actually it was it was disgusting. Um, comments from Rupert Huck and people yeah. like that about Quasi Quasi and being superficially black. Because the thing about the Labour Party is they try so hard to get it right. Mm. And every single conference, the main speech is scuppered by some idiot saying something in a fringe meeting. You know, whether it was Sammy Chakrabarti years ago talking about Essex Man and Rupert Huck at, um, at this party conference talking about basically calling Quasi Quasi a coconut. There is a sense that this, um, I, I get the sense that the Labour Party is constantly just trying to as Tom says, message, 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 yeah. symbolism, 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 you know, making everyone who didn't want to sing the national anthem stand outside the door, basically. And it just comes across as lame to people, I think. Let, let's talk a bit about um, Rupert Huck, because that, as you said, that was the kind of um, unguarded, not on message moment. But that is what the identitarians think, isn't it? That mm. if you're black or you're brown, you can't deviate from their ideas. No, the Rupert Huck thing, was interesting, I think, because what you're seeing is someone trying and failing to mouth a kind of edgy identitarian platitude without really properly being able to back it up, and someone barreling into that particular argument without realising how ugly and genuinely quite racist that kind of ideology <laughs> is. I think it was it was a demonstration of how this is the form of like anti-black or anti-brown racism, which still passes the dinner party test. Yeah, and I think you saw that with Rupert Huck. She's at this fringe meeting. It was unfortunately titled something like "What Next for Labour's Agenda on Race." Mm. Um, Quasi Quasi comes up and she launches into this tirade about you know he's superficially black, but you hear him on the Today program and you wouldn't know that he was black because he <laughs> you know he went to uh, to Eton I think and mm. uh, you know he's quite well off, which is. Interesting. I mean, Rupert Huck went to a very nice West London private school. Does that make her superficially Asian? I don't know. Uh, but there's also this point of, you ask the question, would he be more authentically black if he was less affluent? Would he be yeah. more authentically black if he wasn't, if he didn't speak the Queen's English or the King's English, we should probably say, in the way that he did? This is a really ugly way to talk about things. It does kind of imply that if you're not of a particular stereotypical background, politically mm. as well as socially and economically, that you're not genuine um black person or whatever yeah. it's it's really quite ugly and as Ella says this that superficially black thing it is just the polite way of calling someone a coconut yeah. effectively and if this was a one off you'd dismiss it as like a weird tangent someone went mm. off on but of course we see this time and time again whenever there's a you know new 
fabulously diverse Tory cabinet that gets announced that everyone gets excited about. There's always that kind of tirade of these people are tokens, they're mm. agents of white supremacy, they're turncoats of colour, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, again, it's just that kind of sense of as soon as you stray from the scripts, then you're a fake. Mm. We were a backstabber. It's really, really ugly, but it's entirely mainstream. And I think it, it nods to the fact that when we're talking about what in mainstream public life is sort of rehabilitating a sense of racial essentialism, racial difference, racial stereotypes, yeah. it's in this woke form of it. That's how it's kind of getting well, it's, mainlined at this point. Definitely. I, I guess in the sort of woke worldview where everything is racialized, it's impossible to see people as, as individuals. So you have to see, you know. Mm. That, that's the thing. It's so, it's so easy to talk about actually what she was sort of trying to gesture at in a, in a terrible way without being, as Tom says, racist. I mean, we do it all the time. We say what the the ideas, political ideas you have in your head or your aspirations or what you do with your life shouldn't ha should, should have as little to do with the colour of your skin, your sex, your whatever, your idea, immutable facts of your identity as possible. And not all black people are the same and not all women are the same. And, you know, even we should like saying things like we shouldn't see colour anymore. We shouldn't um, discriminate on the basis of sex, but but that's not on in yeah. the world of identity politics. That that's racist in the world of identity politics. So instead of making a point about saying, I think most of us know that Quasi Quarteng probably doesn't speak for the entirety of the black community in the but same no way one that does. Yeah, yeah. no exactly. one thinks yeah. that. In the same way that no one thinks that Rupert Huck speaks for all women. But this trust speaks for all white people. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, this is they can't let go of this narrative. So they 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 hamstring themselves all the time because they cling on to the idea that you need to have representation, that you need to yeah. have follow the identity politics slogan. But then when repeatedly people come along, particularly in the Conservative Party with its very awkwardly diverse <laughs> cabinet now, and disprove um, their own theory rather than just giving up and saying, okay, we were wrong. They dig their heels in and it ends up in this, as Tom says, incredibly ugly discourse. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.